0: i uh, here with Steve Bratt, joining me from Melbourne. Steve is a psychologist involved in drug and alcohol counselling and also an associate of Curtin University, uh, teaching addiction studies, I believe, and um, I've got in touch with Steve so that we can have a chat about his uh, proposed work in the field of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. Uh, Thanks for having me.
1: Uh, no
0: worries. Um, Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about the research. What first struck me and I think would strike a lot of people is just the concept of being able to do research with something that is also an illegal recreational drug. Um, How exactly does that work?
1: Well, well, it's an interesting question that you ask because most of the drugs that are, are illegal today have been used as medicines in the past. So prior to MDMA becoming an illegal drug, it was being used in the context of psychotherapy, uh, as was LSD in the sixties. So many of the drugs that are currently illegal today have previously been used in medical settings. But I guess what's different about this is um, we, we're sort of going the other way around and, and trying to conduct research with with the currently. Uh, an illegal drug. In Australia, there hasn't been a lot of research conducted with illegal drugs. The research that has been conducted where illegal drugs have actually been administered to humans um, has typically been conducted within the context of a, a pathological paradigm. So looking at the problems that the drugs might cause. So, for example, at Swinburne University, they administered cannabis, MDMA, and methamphetamine to people to look at what impact it might have on their um, skills uh, when it comes to driving a motor vehicle. So they put them in a in a um, in a simulator to determine what deficits there might be when the persons are, are, in, are intoxicated uh, from one of those substances. Outside of that, there's been very little research in Australia on illicit substances. Um, uh-huh. However, if we look at what's happening around the world, there's been quite a bit of a renaissance in terms of researching some of these currently banned substances, and in particular, um, psychedelic substances.
0: Right. So so you're saying that we've um, managed to focus entirely on documenting and uh, quantifying how dangerous... These substances can be, rather than sort of looking at other alternatives, right?
1: Well, it, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's in the interest of research organisations such as universities to perpetuate the idea that these illegal drugs are harmful, since the funding that's available will be principally um, will be principally available for research that demonstrates results that provide justification for maintaining the illegal nature of the substances. So that, that's the idea of this pathological paradigm of drug use. Right. Um, yeah, and, and I guess, um, yeah, so the, the, the focus has primarily been on, on on demonstrating the harmful effects of these drugs. I think what's really interesting with that, though, in, in terms of MDMA is um, in terms of the U.S., and the uh, National Association for Drug Abuse, they've spent something like $100 million um, researching what the harms might be from MDMA. And in fact, they haven't been able to demonstrate a whole lot of harms associated with that particular drug. And in turn, what that allowed was the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, or MAPS, which is headed by Rick Doblin, Uh um, they were able to then use that data as phase one Uh, clinical trial data so they could move straight on to clinical phase two clinical trials looking at what um, therapeutic benefits MDMA might have. Normally what you'd have to do in drug studies is first conduct a phase one trial which demonstrates the safety of the drug but because of all of this um, research that had previously been conducted by NADA um, which didn't tend to show a whole lot of harms associated with the drug, they were able to move straight on to phase two trials.
0: Right. Um, that's really interesting, uh, mainly because we're so guess, surrounded with we talk of the dangers of drugs. Uh, I'm not sure if you saw this in Melbourne, but there was a billboard going around in Sydney recently that had, uh, you know, the picture of the, the dirty toilet in a disgusting bathroom. And this was, you know, the supposed laboratory for, you know, ecstasy pills. Um, so, yeah, it's really interesting to then hear you say that it's been extremely difficult to find to find um, sort of harms associated with, with the drug. Is there there's nothing to speak of at all? Is that something that you have to consider in therapy with MDMA?
1: I think something you need to distinguish between here is the difference between ecstasy and MDMA. So MDMA right. is the pure chemical. So if we're administering the pure chemical to a person, that's quite different to somebody, you know, dropping a couple of tablets in a nightclub, which may or may not contain MDMA and may contain other adulterants in addition right. um, to MDMA. In 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 reference to the uh, the the billboard. Um, that you mentioned i have seen i have seen um, that particular um, uh-huh. anti 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 drug campaign, and what's really interesting is that um, uh, I know Rick doblin uh, it was in Australia a couple of years ago and he he was quite um, taken aback by that particular campaign as well and and showed the campaign to one of the the leading um, psychopharmacologists uh, chemists in the u s who actually um produce the MDMA for use in the trials in the u s and, and um, uh, no laboratory such as that which had been um, set up would would be able to produce mdma it was it was clearly a setup and you know to over dramaticize over dramatize conditions in which mdma might be created and also highlighted that you know, often in those in, in that particular uh, in that particular campaign, I think it sort of talked about you know ecstasy can t- may contain um, uh, battery acid, um, drain cleaner, um, bleach, all of those sorts of all those sorts of chemicals that would put somebody off. But of course, the 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 hypocrisy is all of those things are actually used in the um, development of pharmaceutical drugs. It's just we call them sodium hydroxide, hydrochloric acid and so on right. and so forth. And they're in they're in pure form, you know, they're not usually purchased off, off the shelf at Woolies or Coles.
0: Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um it's yeah, it's obviously a sort of built up cultural bias against these things though. Um is that something that you have to face a lot when when you go to um put forward your applications to use these substances in research? I mean beyond just the, the legal regulations around use of these things do you find that Um, institutions, universities, and, and your colleagues can be resistant to the idea.
1: Um, so far, we've submitted one application to a human res- research ethics committee, and it uh-huh. wasn't rejected on any ethical principles in terms of the use of MDMA itself, or, or any. At least, there was no um, there was no comment made to that being the reason that the application was declined. It was declined upon um, concerns around sample size and, and methodology, and so forth. Um, one of the concerns that they did raise was. Um, the, the lack of a chief investigator with enough clinical uh, and research experience to be able to oversee the, the uh, research governance of the project and so uh-huh. a limitation that we have at the moment is is recruiting somebody who um, has that sort of experience, so that would be somebody like a professor in clinical studies um, and we, we're having trouble engaging somebody um, to oversee the project in that capacity, I think primarily because of some of the, the cultural um, uh, the cultural artifacts that, that you sort of allude to there is um, I think a lot of people a lot of people that have the research experience that we require to be involved in the project really don 't want to touch something like this with a 10 foot pole because of the potential negative media ramifications that could come from it.
0: Right, right. Um, your background is primarily in, in counselling and clinical psychology. Is that right?
1: That's correct. And and research. So I'm I'm, I'm uh, uh, I have a PhD in clinical psychology.
0: Right, right. Um. So that's that's uh to get into something uh, to get into a little bit more detail about what we're talking about. You've been um, putting forward a proposal to carry out uh, psychotherapy with. Um, Patients suffering post traumatic stress disorder, and conduct MDMA assisted psychotherapy sessions. Um, yep. And you're proposing to do that with uh, returned servicemen.
1: Is that right? Correct. Yeah. So the reason that there's a couple of so just to break that down a little bit, I suppose. Um, uh-huh. In terms of using MDMA uh, in the context of psychotherapy, it's advantageous for a couple of reasons. One is um, the primary treatment for people with post traumatic stress disorder involves exposure therapy. So we talk about the traumatic experience over and over again, and, and it allows the person to process the trauma. However, that can be very difficult. For both the patient and the therapist, as you know, hearing the story over and over again can cause vicarious trauma for the therapist. And patients often drop out of the treatment because they find it too difficult to talk about the trauma or they engage in um, defense mechanisms to prevent themselves from actually experiencing the level of anxiety that's required for the therapy to be effective. There's a certain window. Of opportunity or a certain threshold of anxiety that needs to be experienced by somebody who's undergoing exposure therapy to trauma. So the MDMA allows people; uh, it it reduces some of the anxiety people have about talking about the trauma and makes it easier for them to talk about it, which is positive. It also um, fosters rap- rapport between the therapist and the clinician, so that the th- so so sorry, the therapist and the client, so that the client feels more comfortable um, in being able to talk about the traumatic event um, with the therapist. There are other drugs that could reduce anxiety, so things like Valium, benzodiazepines, um, alcohol. All of these drugs reduce anxiety, but if a person talks about a traumatic event while under the influence of one of these drugs, they tend not to be able to process um, the traumatic event. So MDMA is quite unique in that it allows the person to uh, talk about the event with reduced anxiety, but also still process that. In terms of um, the sort of patients that we'd be looking at treating uh in these in in this trial it would be replicating what's already occurred in the US and uh and uh in um switzerland uh and there's there's other studies currently underway in Canada and, and in the US where they're focusing on people who have not responded to other treatments. So it's not being provided as a first line treatment but only for people who have not responded to other treatments. So they may have um, already tried cognitive behavioural therapy, exposure therapy. Have tried an antidepressant medication, and those haven't been effective. So it's it's used as a last um, a last line um, defence um, treat, treatment. Um, in terms right. of the, the veteran population, I guess um, the idea there is to focus on. Just one particular type of trauma, um, because that gives the the research more um, more rigor. Whereas if you um, conduct the research with all different types of um, traumatic events, it it may um, you know it 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 detracts from the methodological rigor of the research. In addition to that, I think there's a bit of a political um, motive to focusing on war veterans, because I mean who could argue um, who could argue with providing um, a treatment to, you know, somebody who served our country um, in Afghanistan or Iraq and has, you know, been provided treatments by the Department of Veteran Affairs that haven't been effective. I mean, it it creates a certain sympathy, I think, towards the cause.
0: Absolutely. I was was going to ask you about that because I saw a um, brief report on the proposals to do this research in Australia. It was published with Channel 9 News, which for the benefit of people overseas, is a um, very business-friendly sort of news outlet. Uh, they love stories about the drug war, ethnic gangs, and uh, any sort of story that can, uh, that can tarnish tarnish drugs and, and I suppose, um, tarnish a lot of people. Um, and yet they published a very positive story about this, um, citing a bloke called uh, Major Steve McDonald. Correct. Have you been in touch with him?
1: Yeah, so so Psychedelic Research in Science and Medicine or PRISM is a not-for-profit organization that was established in 2012 following Rick Doblin from MAPS coming over to Australia and um, discussing um, what opportunities there might be for psychedelic research in Australia. Um, and the PRISM consists of a board that's made up of myself as the Vice President. Um, Dr. Martin Williams, who's the president, and uh, Major Steve McDonald is the secretary for the organization. And so right. I think as an organization, it's useful to have the input of a consumer um, uh, you know, in terms of um, developing a research protocol. Often, often as researchers, we get together and deve- you know, come up with an idea, but we often don't actually involve the people who the research directly affects.
0: Right, right. Um, yeah, yeah, it was, it was really interesting to see this. Um, in light of, I suppose it, it seemed to turn the tables quite a lot, um, given that a lot of other news, news stories will talk about, you know, using ecstasy clinically, and they won't make that distinction that you made earlier between MDMA and, and ecstasy. There was one, uh, another report that I found, where they cited a professor from the University of Melbourne Uh, David Forbes. I'll read a little bit of what he said about these proposals. Uh, He said, it's important to recognize that we have very solid evidence around psychological therapies called trauma-focused cognitive behavior therapy. These treatments have been shown to be effective across trauma-affected populations, whether they be sexual assault survivors, military veterans, or traumatically injured patients. We're dealing with a drug um, in reference to MDMA which the parameters are less well-known in terms of its impact. I caution strongly against throwing it out or getting distracted from what we already know works. What are your thoughts on, on that?
1: Well, I think often people think that science is apolitical and objective. And I think it's important to understand that everybody involved in in science has um, a certain vested interest in maintaining a particular position. Um, So David Forbes uh, obviously has a vested interest in maintaining um, the prominence of uh, trauma-focused cognitive behavioural therapy as the first-line treatment for trauma and it continues to be the first-line treatment for trauma. However, um, I guess there are some lim- I, there, there are some limitations to that particular treatment and a number of people don't respond to that and hence why the focus of the MDMA trials um, both proposed in Australia and those occurring around the world are focused on people that actually haven't responded to that treatment. So what we don't have at the moment is a treatment for people who um, don't respond to the first line treatments. So right, I would agree remember. that at the moment, um, Trauma, trauma-focused cognitive behavioural therapy is the first-line treatment and the most effective treatment that we have. But it would be good to have some alternative options for people who don't respond to that particular treatment. In terms of non-response rates, it depends. There's the literature varies, but anywhere between. Uh, Fifty and thirty percent of people don't respond to that particular treatment type. That's a significant proportion of people yeah. um, that are continuing to suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder in the absence of any other treatment.
0: Right. Um, so, just to backtrack a little bit, when you talk about trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy, you're you're talking about long um, therapy sessions in which you try and uh, draw the patient into reliving the experience and. I suppose reconceptualizing
1: it—it's that exposure that I talked about before. So a session would usually last for about an hour and a half. There's a preparation uh, and a and a debrief, and what you do is you set up a hierarchy with the patient so that you start off um, working talking about the trauma in the least um, in the least anxiety anxiety provoking way and work your way up through the hierarchy until the person's um, doing imagery exposure with their eyes closed and trying to you know, reimagine the trauma in first person. So as I mentioned earlier on, one of the limitations of that treatment and, and why it's not effective for some people is some people find that it's, it, they, they can't sit with the anxiety, they either experience too much anxiety and drop out of treatment or they uh, don't actually engage in the treatment process enough and don't, in, and don't experience enough anxiety for the treatment to be effective and then right. for those people i think that's where mdma can be quite effective because it allows them to either um turn down the volume on the anxiety so that they're able to experience it within that window of um tolerance which is necessary for the treatment to be effective or or disengage from the defense mechanisms that they may be using to try to turn down the anxiety which again is leading them not to experience enough anxiety to be within that window of tolerance that's required for the um, trauma-based therapy to be effective.
0: Yeah, there's a testimonial that I came across when I was reading, reading up on this topic that I think speaks to that a little bit. Um, this is from a patient who participated in the MDMA-assisted therapy in the United States. She said, without this study, I don't think I could have ever dug down so deep. I was so afraid of the fear in the in these sessions, there was just no fear, and that builds your confidence. When I tried in therapy before, it would send me into a tailspin. Um, so I thought it was interesting to, I suppose, reflect on the fact that it's it can be an emotionally damaging experience in itself, being forced to relive or not forced to, but you know, attempting to relive the experience and resolve it. And if you have such high rates of, um, sort of failure in these therapies. You're talking about people who are going back again and again to, to experience that and, and really not getting anywhere because there's so much fear and, and negative emotion built up around that.
1: Yeah, and I think, look, from my, from my experience, um, and I guess where my interest in this comes from, is from my background in uh, working with people with problems associated with alcohol and other drugs, we see a really high um, comorbidity rate of people with trauma who experience problems with alcohol and other drugs because they experience, um, that's, that they often use alcohol and other drugs as a way to cope with the significant emotion um, that, the, that the trauma experience creates and in turn their use of alcohol and other drugs can make it very difficult to work with them um, in terms of managing and, and treating the trauma. It creates a very vicious cycle I guess.
0: Yeah, right. It sort of shows that the um, anti-drug language used in regards to the psychotherapy is um, sort of creating a false dichotomy of drug use, whereas drug use versus no drug use when obviously a lot of people who are traumatized will end up at the bar and, and drinking a lot and attempting to self-medicate in a way that doesn't help
1: definitely and and it works very well alcohol, for example works very well for people with trauma as a short term solution it 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 turns down the anxiety um, and allows them to sort of to to cope with everyday life but of course it's not a long term solution because of all the problems associated with heavy alcohol use in terms of toxicity but also the dependence that um that heavy alcohol use then can create
0: right um So in contrast, when you talk about giving people MDMA, um, do you have to – are there any concerns with toxicity, for example?
1: Um, Not at this stage. I mean, there, there are. Because this is, because at the moment we're, we, we're conducting phase two clinical trials, there uh-huh. are very tight inclusion and exclusion criteria for people who can and can't um, participate in the trials. So, for example, we wouldn't want anybody participating in the trials who are currently experiencing psychotic symptoms, bipolar disorder, uh, have significant medical health comorbidities such as liver problems, and that's a way to pr- to reduce the potential consequence of um, people experiencing toxicity or experiencing any other um, psychological problems associated with the administration of MDMA.
0: Okay, um, I saw another interesting um, little factoid about your proposed research is that you were saying that anyone who was a current user of MDMA would be excluded from the study cohort. What was the rationale? What was the rationale behind that decision?
1: Well, there's a couple of things. One is um, it, I, it's difficult to then um, determine how effective the MDMA is within the context of psychotherapy for somebody who has used MDMA a number of times. I think you know what you want is a fresh slate to work with um, in, to ensure that the uh, methodology of the research is rigorous. In addition to that, um, there's also a, a, an ethical concern about giving uh, a drug to a person, and we want to minimise the potential that the person that that engaging the person in the research might lead them to experience further substance use problems. Um, uh-huh. So we want to minimise people that that have significant people that have significant substance. Um, uh, that have significant problems associated with substance use. Um, in terms of the trials that have been conducted to date, um, uh-huh. only one person out of all the participants tried to uh, actually went out afterwards and sought out some MDMA because they thought, you know, the experience was quite good and they, they sought to replicate that. And interestingly, right. they found that their experience outside of the clinical setting um, was quite different to that. Within a clinical setting, they didn't like the experience and they wouldn't try it again.
0: Okay, um, leads me to, to um, a few questions I'd like to ask you regarding that obviously MDMA is a reasonably popular recreational drug. Do you think there's therapeutic elements to people using it and going and dancing and listening to music and, and spending time with their friends? And, and how, how does that differ in the impacts that that has on, on people as opposed to being guided through... So that's psychotherapy session.
1: Well, I think um, MDMA and LSD, um, the setting is extremely important in terms of the person's experience. We, we know back from the 60s and Timothy Leary the importance of set and setting, um, and right. I think there is, there is quite a big difference between... Uh, taking LSD or MDMA within a clinical setting and taking it outside of a clinical setting. Um, uh-huh. In a clinical setting, the environment's very controlled, whereas uh, outside of a clinical setting, there's less control over that environment. And so in turn, a person's more likely to have a negative experience outside of a clinical setting. In saying that, however, I'm not saying that a person um, may not benefit therapeutically from taking... Uh, you know, LSD or MDMA outside of a clinical setting, however, because there's less control over it, it's more, likely, it's more likely that they may experience, have a negative experience and it's less likely that they would have a therapeutic benefit from it.
0: Right, right. Um, I assume there's, a, there's also the sense of being completely overwhelmed that can um, lead people to, to become somewhat anxious and confused about the experience. As well, when it's taken in that kind of context.
1: Yeah, certainly, and and you know, doing this in a clinical setting with um, trained trained clinicians who are able to um, assist the person through that difficult experience uh, is is going to be quite dif- different to somebody who you know maybe in a club um, loses loses where their friends are and, and becomes quite anxious and maybe experiences a panic attack, for example, in that. Second, in in that latter example, um, perhaps the use of the drug could actually have a detrimental effect and lead to a person experiencing anxiety. I think you can't, um, I can't highlight the importance of um, setting within the use of um, psychedelic drugs in general, Um, the setting Mm -hmm. setting is very important And, and I guess more broadly with MDMA some of the harms that um, are seen with e- with, uh, with with ecstasy, um, obviously some of it relates to um, the drug not being manufactured in a regulated environment and, and not knowing what's in the drug and other adulterants being in it, but also um, when people take MDMA often they, or when people take ecstasy uh, outside of a clinical setting, they're often dancing, uh, maybe engaging in other poly substance use like drinking alcohol and some of those things, um, could lead to some of the harms that you wouldn't see in a clinical setting. Um, right. you, in a clinical setting people aren't jumping around dancing so their heart rate isn't going to be increasing, blood blood pressure isn't going to be increasing, they're less likely to become dehydrated and experience uh-huh. some of the the the, the, the harms that, that we do that, you know, we tend to see in a non clinical setting.
0: Um, in all serious in all seriousness though, you, you do talk about eight hour sessions with um with MGMa, how exactly do pass that time? Um, are you speaking with the person for for all of those eight hours, or what kind of what kind of activities do? You...
1: It's actually um, uh, a lot less directive than trauma based cognitive behavioral therapy. So uh, on the okay. website, you can actually download the the, um, the treatment manual, access the treatment manual, and it describes uh, an approach which um, which the MDMA um, does a lot more of the work than the clinician. So the clinician um, and, and clinicians, in fact, because it's uh, a male and female team within the, the protocol that's being developed, um, oh. generally guide the person to, uh, to sort of ex- re-experience the traumatic event, but they don't really push them too hard most people tend to um, go down that path in the clinical setting under the influence of MDMA um, through their own volition and they don't need a whole lot of guidance.
0: Right. Um,
1: um, I, guess, I guess a big difference, between, and this is, this is something which makes it difficult to explain to um, people that, that are currently involved in post-traumatic stress um, um, research, is that it... A lot of the the effect seems to be from the drug itself rather than the the, the therapeutic um, process. MDMA seems to have uh, in that environment have some sort of innate therapeutic quality about it.
0: Right, in terms of I suppose allowing an emotional openness that that um, that lets people reevaluate um, their past. I suppose. In in what way does does the the sort of um, the chemical impact of of using MDMA, in what way does that mirror a sort of natural function for the neurotransmitters that it triggers?
1: Um, I guess MDMA works by um, preventing the reuptake of serotonin in the brain, so uh, it occurs in a similar fashion to the way antidepressants work, they um, prevent the reuptake of serotonin leading to uh-huh. high levels of serotonin in the brain. Um, antidepressants yeah. do that very slowly, whereas MDMA does it um, uh, in a very immediate fashion, which is why you, get the, you see this, the, the effects that you see from MDMA. Um, versus those of an antidepressant medication. So what it's doing is elevating the seroton- levels of serotonin in the brain to, to uh, a much higher level than would normally naturally be experienced. Okay. In many senses, in many senses, the experience of MDMA is um, being produced uh, by the, the brain's own neurochemicals. Um, rather than the drug itself, the drug simply preventing the reuptake of chemicals leading to a higher than natural level of serotonin in the brain
0: Okay, because obviously you hear people talking about MDMA as an experience that um, provokes that sensation of love um, brought on by the drug and by the involvement um, of you know, music and dance and, and spending time with friends um, Is that Do you know if that 's accurate on, on a chemical level is it the kind is it basically the same kind of emotional state?
1: Yeah, well, there's another chemical that um, MDMA affects, which is a hormone called oxytocin. Um, Oxytocin is often referred to as the the love hormone or the the bonding hormone. Um, We see really high levels of oxytocin in mothers when they first give birth. Um, It's assumed to um, help um, with the attachment process between the mother and the child. And so... MDMA increases levels of oxytocin, leading to increased levels of trust um, and, and rapport and so forth. So at a chemical level, I guess that explains the mechanism of MDMA and, and how it relates to the, 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 the natural um, chemicals within the human brain.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, one thing I would like to touch on just quickly is that uh, regular users of MDMA will often mention... Um, the idea that uh, the experience is not necessarily relative to the exact amount of the drug taken, so repeated use won't always generate um, the same sort of emotional response. Is that something that you have to? And and also along with that, um, talk about you hear people talking about uh, you know uh, worse and worse come downs the next day. Um, from first time, not really experiencing that much at all, and then with regular use, sort of experiencing a, a sort of greater low on the following day. Um, is that something that you have to incorporate when you think about doing this research, or is it, um, you know, if you're just doing one session, do you have to, to be concerned about that?
1: Well, I think, as you say, um, the the come down tends to be more prolific as people use the drug. More frequently, so that's again one of the reasons why we want to exclude people from the research that have used MDMA a number of times. Um, and mm-hmm. so far, um, with the samples that have be that have been um, the samples that have been administered the drug, there hasn't been a whole lot of problems um, with people experiencing that that come down um, in in the days after the therapeutic session. So it does seem like um, the more you use the drug, the more the the, the um, nastier the come down you're going to have. I'm not ex- I'm not explicitly sure why that is, but but it certainly seems to be um, there seems to be some good anecdotal evidence and the research that's been conducted with participants who haven't taken MDMA um, previously or at least have used it very few times previously um, supports that idea that um, that the, the come down. Uh, increases with frequency of use. In addition to that, I, I agree that um, that often people will say that the first time they use it is is the most salient for them. Um, and often, you know, they'll try and use at higher doses in the future to replicate that first experience. But they find it very difficult to ever replicate that first experience, which is another good reason for eliminating people. From, the tr- from these sorts of trials that have used MDMA or have taken ecstasy a number of times in the past.
0: Right. Um, I suppose just trying to reason this without having any of the requisite expertise, you could, um, I suppose, hypothesize that you're seeing a depletion of neurotransmitters whose release is triggered by the MDMA. So if you are repeatedly taking it, then you're talking about having less and less uh, serotonin and oxytocin um, in the brain and in the body. Does that, does that sound accurate to you?
1: I'm, I think it's probably more, a little bit more complicated than that. Um, there is some uh-huh. research showing that if uh, animals are administered very high levels of MDMA very frequently, it does lead to neuronal death. And so oh. it could be um, with frequent use of MDMA, some um, uh, some depletion of, or, or some brain damage as a result of that, which could contribute to some of the, the consequences that we're talking about, but I don't think we have enough research to really um, understand that, particularly within um, a human population, because we haven't done enough research in humans um, with, with regard to high doses um, and you know frequent use. I think that the low doses that we're talking about in, you know, in these clinical trials that are being conducted, um, and the, you know, the fact that we're only giving it to people a maximum of three times, um, uh-huh. I don't think those concerns really, really relate to to the use of it in a clinical setting. I think any drug, um, you know, if it's used um, too frequently, can cause harm, be it alcohol um, or, or alcohol, um, you know, LSD, anything, if you use anything, um, too much, it's not good for you. I think, I think the, um, the old adage from the Greeks is to, to do everything in moderation. Uh
0: Uh-huh. Yeah, absolutely. Um, right, um, that's just about it for me, I think. Um, I'm sure we could, we could continue talking for, for a long time, but there's nothing in particular that I wanted to add. Um, Yes, thanks very much. Is there anything that you wanted to say um, before we go?
1: Um, I guess the last thing, I I guess it would be um, really sad if Australia, if if we aren't able to conduct this research in Australia, it would be quite sad I think because um, maps are moving very quickly now towards conducting phase three clinical trials which would involve um, much larger samples. Uh, and if we don't have the expertise in Australia and don't initiate some of this initial research, I think um, a number of people um, may, uh, you know, not benefit from being able to access it.
0: Right, and there could be a, a career move to the United States on the cards for yourself as well. I imagine.
1: <laughs> I, I, I have considered that.
0: Right. Oh well, yeah, thanks. Thanks so much for sharing your experience and and your expertise on the
1: topic. And um, you're just welcome. Thanks very much. Not a problem, Christian.